There is more to me, Queen Eliara of Elfgard, than my elven magic. Just as there's more to Geico than saving you money, Geico also gives you 24-7 access to licensed agents online, on the phone, or on the Geico app. And while I am a mighty elf queen, I am also a mighty big fan of barbecue potato chips. Minions? More smoky mesquite. Geico. Expect great savings and a whole lot more. Welcome to Crime Wire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case to Crime Wire or suggest a topic for a future show, please email us at thenewcrimewire at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at The New Crime Wire. My name is Denny Griffin, and on today's show, my co-host Delilah Jones and I are going to talk about infamous serial killer Ted Bundy with Kevin Sullivan. Kevin is a writer of history and true crime and has authored 12 books. He was formerly an investigative journalist for both print and online media. He is a recognized authority on serial killer Bundy. Kevin's breakout book, the Bundy Murders, a comprehensive history, was published by McFarland in 2009 and was the catalyst that brought Kevin recognition in, truth, in the true crime world, leading to appearances on numerous radio programs, both in the United States and the United Kingdom. Portions of Kevin's biography of Ted Bundy appear in the college textbook, Abnormal Psychology, Clinical Perspectives on Psychological Disorders, published by McGraw-Hill in November 2012. Kevin's second book in the Bundy saga, The Trail of Ted Bundy, Digging Up the Untold Stories, is a companion volume to the Bundy murders and contains new and previously unpublished information about Bundy in his most infamous cases. Kevin's latest work, The Bundy Secrets, Hidden Files on America's Worst Serial Killer, complete his trilogy on the Bundy murders. In addition to being a prolific writer, Kevin has been an ordained Christian minister for over 32 years. Kevin, welcome to CrimeWire. <clears throat> well, thank you for having me. And uh, yes, with the last little thing, might have uh, some folks head spinning, true crime writer and ordained, you know, a minister. <laughs> that they, hey, they, they kind of don't go together. Well, sometimes they do. now uh listen i i think obviously uh you have a wealth of information about ted bundy um i think it would be probably the best way to go is just to have you start off and uh, sure tell the listeners uh who and what bundy is and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. and go with it and you will, uh, Delilah and I uh, will on occasion uh, perhaps uh, butt mm-hmm. in uh, to ask you a question or follow okay. up. Uh, Kevin, take over. All right. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, yeah, I, I spent most of my adult life in the ministry, but at the age of 40, I got the writing bug, as they say, and I uh, 
published a book on uh, George Armstrong Cusser. It was a personality study that was published in 1995 and um, still doing the ministry and things like that. But uh, I also, uh, because I've been reading true crime since I was a kid, I was the first adult book I ever read was a book called the world's worst murders by an English author named Charles Franklin. I I was 10. And uh, that was my entrance into the world of books, adult books. And, uh, that fascination and that interest in crime stayed with me. So when I started writing things, I had already always read about true crime cases, things about war, Custer, things like that. Um, just natural for me to write about that. But so I would write, and I used to uh, write some uh, articles for a paper here in town called. It was in, actually in five states. At one point, it was called Snitch, and it was it it had to do with crime issues of crime and the law. Very unique weekly print newspaper uh by the time i started writing for them uh they were um uh you know like it's still in three or four states uh but uh i uh i wasn't on staff but i would just submit articles sometimes and i was doing a lot of stories on kentucky writers and kentucky crimes and those those were later published into books but um i never had a desire to write about ted bundy i was somewhat familiar with the case but a friend of mine from here in Louisville, who's now gone, uh, his name was James Massey, the probation and parole officer here in Kentucky for many, many years. And when I met Jim uh, and we we would talk about the Bundy case, he told me about uh, a friend of his by the name of retired detective Jerry Thompson, who was the lead detective for the Bundy case in Utah. And it was in Utah that Bundy w- was brought out of the shadows. And so... We would talk about Jerry, and uh, I got a call from Jim one day in um, uh, maybe at March of, 19, of, uh, of 2005, and he said Jerry and his wife were coming to Louisville. That's, this is where I live, Louisville, Kentucky. And he said, would you like to have dinner with us? I said, yeah, that's great. And uh, so they came to Louisville in May, and I remember the Sunday that Jim called me. We were expecting them on a Sunday, and they did. And uh, he called me to let me know where we were going to be eating dinner. And I said, great. And uh, before, you know, we could say goodbye, he, he, he blurted out. He said, uh, he brought the bag. I said, what bag? He said he, he, said <laughs> he brought the bag that Ted, that, that Ted Bundy used to carry, you know, his murder kit. I said, are you kidding me? He said, no. I said, listen, can you meet me a few minutes early up at the place? Uh, because, he, because Jerry had turned the bag over to, to Jim for the two days that, that he was here. So I said, I'd like to see that stuff before we meet Jerry, you know, before I meet him. So I got to see it. It, it was uh, amazing. The, the the next night I was able to bring it from Jim's house to mine and photograph all this stuff on the dining room table. My wife didn't even want the stuff in the house, but anyway, I mean, I, I would tease her about that now, but she, she, she was happy to see that go back out the door. But, uh, but I got to photograph it and, what was so surreal? The whole thing was surreal. But before uh, Jerry left um, and went back to Utah, he gave me and he gave Jim one of the glad trash bags from Bundy's murder kit. And Bundy would use these bags after he he had murdered these women. He would uh, often put their clothes in these bags and dump them off in dump- dumpsters or someplace else far away from from the body. I found that situation so surreal. That I thought, well, I'll write an article for Snitch about it, 
and I did, and I titled it Three Days with Ted Bundy, and it was all about that murder kit and about meeting Jerry. And I thought that that would, that would get this out of my system, but it didn't. And I uh, uh, soon after that d- decided to write a book, a biography about him. And then I had people that, that, that uh, were very familiar with the Bundy case and said, you don't need to be doing a book about Ted Bundy because he's been done to death. And um, there's a lot of good books out there. I said, I understand that, but uh, I'm going to go with what I feel, with what I know on the inside. What was interesting about it is I just knew I should just go ahead and pursue this anyway. And and as I did, I got in touch with the, all the main investigators. They worked with me. And lo and behold, before I was halfway through the book, I was discovering many new things about a number of these murders that had never come to light before and never been in print, and a whole lot of new things about the case in general. By the time I got halfway through the book, I, I stood back and I looked at it and I thought, and this thing is taking on a life of its own. And uh, so I finished that book. I, the whole book took me two and a half years to research and write. And I was able to sell it uh, within three weeks. Uh, I had sent out six um, query you know, letters to you know, publishers. And uh, um, McFarland bought it. Um, they signed me to a contract. Almost immediately, the guy said he was very, the acquisitions editor liked the new stuff I had found, liked the way I wrote, liked the way I researched, and I had noted everything, and I backed everything up by the record. They were very pleased with that. And then, uh, so I signed a contract with them. A couple weeks after that, I get a letter from one of the other houses I'd sent it to. They were wanting to sign me. I had to tell them, I'm sorry, I've I've already signed with uh, someone else. And I did all that without the um, help, help of an agent. And it just goes to show uh, when you have something that ends up having like a unique aspect to it, it's uh, sometimes easier to sell than some people might think. And in any event, it is the book that put me on the map. And uh, I never thought when I finished the book that I would uh, ever write anything about uh, Ted Bundy again outside of an article. And I didn't mind doing radio programs or a documentary or anything like that. That was fine. But I never wanted to get into that. I had immersed myself into that world for two and a half years. I mean, you you could talk to my wife. It was 24-7 that. We'd be out to dinner. I'd get a call from somebody out of state, and there we'd go. Uh, You know, I would write all day. She's at work. At night, we'd have dinner together. And off I'd go into my, you know, study. I'd write again. And it was a... It was really a constant thing, and I was glad to let it go. So I never expected to write another book about that. And then uh, I remember in 2014, I think it was, I was contacted by a writer who wanted me to co-author a book with them about possible victims of Ted Bundy in other areas. Uh, And, for instance, perhaps maybe even murders he may have committed in the Bay Area, San Francisco, and maybe even in Canada. And I thought, uh, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that because I don't want to delve back into that world. I could, uh, Without question, we would have written the book. It would have been good. We'd have sold the book, and I'd have made money. But I thought, do I really want to go down that route again? And I thought, nope, don't want to. I'm just going to write something else. And then in 2015, I was on the phone with somebody who had um, 
who had a uh, who had major medical issues, and they were one somebody that very close to, to the case. And uh, along with that, a couple people involved in the case had had, had recently died, and I uh, remember thinking, you know, if I'm ever going to do anything uh, else again with this, um, I need to do it now. And so I thought, you know, it won't be so bad because I'll be looking for additional testimony. I don't have to get into all those gruesome murders and keep reliving that and doing all that. But I can get, for instance, like testimony of people that knew him that I didn't interview the first time. I can I can get as much information about the case and get it down in print for posterity, which will be good for historians. At heart, that's, even though I'm a true crime writer mostly, at heart I, at heart I am a historian, and I like to get stuff, you know, for posterity. Get it on the printed page, save it, and I've done that a number of times with cases that uh, will basically lost the history, and I brought them back to life, and then they're there for people to read, and they'll be there for a long, 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 long time. So I went ahead and started, again, uh, another book on Ted Bundy in, in, in 2015. I went back out uh, to all those places, and I went to places that even I had never been to the first time. I gathered new information, and I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was being shocked all over again. The second book, Trail of Ted Bundy, that I, I gained information from people that had never talked to writers again. In fact, one of Bundy's really good Mormon friends, uh, and he had several out in Utah, was offered a lot of money right after Bundy was executed, a couple of days after, to give his story to one of the national magazines. He said, no, I'm not doing it. Twenty years or so later, I come along. He's willing to talk. It didn't cost me a dime. And so I had a lot of new information in that book, and, a lot, and I described the places, how they were, and, uh, and it was just really great. It turned out, and it wasn't the emotional toll on me like the first book, and so it was great. And I thought, well, that's it. That's it with Ted Bundy. But then, as, is often, as often happens when I publish a book about him, people contact me later. And other people contacted me with news stories and that had never been interviewed. And so as I gathered these, I had an idea, and I thought, you know, I have always wanted to, because I would touch on this in my two other books. When I was doing my original research for the Bundy Murders, I remember, and I have got thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of case file material. And I remember going through it. As writers, we pick and choose. We bring out what we need. It's a very small portion of the case file. And we put it in the books, and we write the story. But I remember thinking, doing the original research, I wish people could see some of these reports, raw and unedited, as the investigators saw them, as they were hunting this elusive killer of women. And then once they knew it was Bundy, doing everything they can to put him behind bars and perhaps get him into the death house. So they're very illuminating, but people can't see them. They only see what we as writers give them when we pull from that and add to the books. So I thought, I'm getting all this testimony anyway. I think, I think I'd like to reproduce a lot of these records that are really important from my files um, and I'll add commentary to it so it'll give clarity where clarity is needed, where they might not know something. And uh, I talked to uh, 
you know, uh, you know, my publisher, Wild Blue Press, McFarland did the first book. Wild Blue Press had done the other books. They felt it was a good idea. I felt it was a good idea. Forward with it. And the result of which is uh, a, it, it, it ended up being a really good book again. And it's so enlightening because it is the case files with commentary and new testimonies. And, of course, that last book is, uh, is uh, The Bundy Secrets. And so, uh, yeah, with that, I never knew this was going to turn into a trilogy. But uh, at the end of the road, here we are. <clears throat> so you've really, uh, you know, thought a couple of times that you were done with Bundy and then something else would happen that would bring it back. And uh, right. are you pretty sure this is the final? Or do you think something else might be out there that would interest you with him? Well, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling a little bit. Because the people that know me and purchase my books on Bundy, they they, they don't want this to be the last one. <laughs> they don't want it to be the last one. I get I get I get emails from people all the time when they've heard me say this on other shows and stuff like that. They they need me to find a way to do more. I can't envision it. I say in the book, uh, uh, everything that I have ever really wanted to say about this case, including now the case files, letting people see them. A lot of these files in their entirety, uh, it's still a small portion of them, but they're, they're important portions. Uh, I can't imagine going down another road. And just to revisit that thing with that um, one person that contacted me, um, this person's actually doing something with somebody else about Bundy, and, and I wish them well. But that on the suspected murders, I don't think I'd want to go down that road because I'm not sure that was him. So if I'm looking at... Uh, Bundy, what we know Bundy did, and what is likely Bundy, even though he didn't admit, then that's pretty well covered in these three books. And I've told people that if I come across things and new people contact me, I will probably just publish that information uh, in articles. So I can't see myself writing another book, but you know, I, I, I think I think I'm pretty safe in saying that this is really it. But I think okay. I think people are are believing me. They're not believing me, <laughs> guys. So I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Kevin, how many how many victims are there of Bundy's, and how many suspected victims of Bundy? And I'm sure there's probably a lot more out there that maybe aren't even suspected yet. What do you think? Well. You, now you, 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 were, you were breaking up just a little bit, but I think your question was how many did he like kill and how many is he suspected of killing? Is that correct? Correct. Yes. I mean, I okay. think that there's a certain number that have been proven. Yes. Are definitely victims. Well, he said um, he's, he's owned up or basically they've been able to label him with 30 murders up to 30, between 30 and 36 murders. That is a lot of people to kill. But he is suspected of killing more than that. And the thing about Bundy is, towards the end, he, he, you know, he, he became very honest towards the end of his life about talking about those that he killed uh, who were college-aged you know, women. But he also killed uh, teens and preteen girls. And those he never really wanted to talk about. And um, Bundy never really wanted to give that information out. He was kind of forced to give it out 
towards the end of his life to, 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 to buy more time. But um, I would say that a reasonable count um, would be anywhere from, say, 36 to 50. It could go higher, but I would probably think it doesn't. Some people think he killed as many a as a as many as a hundred. That to me would be exceedingly high. But um, so I, I I don't put any uh, stock in that at all. They have a right to believe it. I just don't think so. It do I do find it curious that he admitted to eleven murders in Washington State, but uh, he would only give the names of I think it was eight. Uh, and then he admitted to eight murders in Utah, but he refused to name more than five. So there were things he held on to. And towards the end, instead of outright lying about things, if he didn't want to talk about something, he just uh, dodged the issue or said, I'll have to get back with you on that. Uh, but everything he did talk about was very forthright. And honest. So, you know, uh, I'd be surprised if it was less than 36, but I would also be surprised if it was less than 50. Uh, he was a very prof- uh, prolific killer. And um, when he first began his murders um, in Washington State, uh, he was sharp and he never left behind any evidence at all. And uh, even even when he came to light in Utah, and everybody, all the investigators from all the states where Bundy had killed it, put it together, this is their guy, there wasn't any way Bob Keppel was going to be able to charge him with anything in Washington State because they had no evidence. And, of course, the sloppier he became, and he got trapped up really badly on the gas receipts in, in Utah and Colorado where, you know, he, he never expected to be arrested uh, ever about with, with any of this stuff. But, but when he was, they were able to track uh, his gas receipts, the places where those murders were committed and when they were committed. And uh, so, you know, <laughs> but that was just a mistake he made. Okay. Uh, but as he moved in and escaped from Colorado and got to Florida, by the time he reached Florida, he was a very uh, uh, odd killer. He was no longer slick no longer refined instead of drawing women to him he was repelling you know women they they they, they didn't like the vibes that they, they, he you know that were were coming from him he was a physically unkempt individual by then uh in, instead of the person that is was sharp a sharp dresser and always clean fingernails clean okay he he had transformed he was descending but until that time he was as sharp as a tack when it came to murder in Washington state and beyond. So, you know, um, he didn't want to give up the secrets that he says this in the deposition. He said in Florida, he said, this information is mine. It belongs to me. And if I'm going to give it up, I'm going to have to have some things in return. And uh, so with killers like this, you got to understand, and there's a lot of killers like that. There's not many killers as slick as Bundy, and like Bundy, just the totality of his person makes him unique. That's 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 something that Bundy has that's different from other killers. But there's a lot of killers out there, especially those who murder women, who consider the situation, the the, the event mystical, and 
because they're playing God and they're taking the person's life and they're there, right there. Bundy used to say he used to like uh, being right there and watching the last breath leave, you know, the woman. And he admitted to Bob Keppel, the, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, the cyanotic hue of the fingernails changing because of the lack of oxygen of the freshly dead. He enjoyed all that. And when you have that, You don't really want to give it up. It's a very private moment. And, um, but towards the end, he had to start giving some of that up. But when it got too close to certain things like necrophilia, things like that, he would uh, shy away from it and said, well, I have to get back on to you about that. Or I'd rather not talk about that. So, uh, but your total, I'd say a good round total of his victims would, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50. Uh, Kevin, for for those uh, people who are not familiar uh, with Bundy, uh, may have heard his name, but not not really uh, followed or uh, read any of your books, for example, about Mm -hmm. him. Could could Mm -hmm. you take us through, uh, uh, let's take it an early case when when he was sharp, Mm -hmm. And, and wasn't leaving mm-hmm. evidence and so forth. Uh, how would a typical Bundy murder go down? Uh, you know, from how he would meet the woman and, and that type of thing mm-hmm. up until the, the murder. Yes. Okay, sure. A couple points I'll, uh, that I'd like to go to with that. Um, most people, a lot of people have seen Silence of the Lambs, and they'll remember a scene where a uh, guy's trying to load a couch on, in, in the back of a van, and he's got a cast on his arm, and he's dropping it. And uh, a woman comes over, over to help him, and uh, she actually he asks her to get in the back of it and pull in does. And of course, that's how he was able to obtain her. Well, they got that mode. That they, they got that M.O., even though Bundy never did exactly that. They got that M.O. from Bundy. Bundy had uh, used casts, leg casts, arm casts, slang dropping of books, things like that, to entice normal women who aren't thinking of uh, a disabled man as being a threat, uh, to getting them, helping them get their books to the car. Uh, and then uh, if, if it's a deserted area, uh, he had a chance to whack him on the head, and off he would go. He was a real planner of murder. That's the thing. But it's not just the planning of murder, because he did things that you would not say if I were a serial killer or you were. He did think, of course, we're normal. This is We're going to think normally. He did things that we would not do. I would not go into a theater, as he did in uh, Bountiful, Utah, and expose myself to 1,500 people in a theater while I looked for one of them to abduct. I would go, if I were doing it, I would go find a hitchhiker, which he had done, but I would never expose myself to 1,500 people. So he would do things. You can't, you almost couldn't put Bundy in a mold. And if you can just imagine how shocking some of these things were in Washington State when they didn't know, know who was doing this. For example, the strangest abduction I have ever heard of was committed by Ted Bundy. I have never heard of one more that's stranger before then. I do not ever in my lifetime expect to ever hear of one like this. It was the abduction of Linda Ann Healy. Here's what he did. 
He may have known Linda Ann Healy. He may not have known. Some people think that he did know her. I, I, I tend to think he probably not knew her, knew her, but knew of her and could recognize her and knew her name. But in any event, um, one night uh, that uh, Linda Ann Healy left her place on uh, on her uh, house on, on 12th Street in Seattle, walked a couple blocks to uh, Roosevelt Road, and went into Dante's Tavern. She used to frequent 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 that place, as did Bundy. And it plays, again, college kids, they're drinking, they're, you know, playing music, they're dancing. It's just a normal place. And she came back home. She went with several of her friends, and she came back home that night. Now, Bundy alluded to the fact that he was there, that he followed her home. And w- what happens was, when they got back home, uh, you know, Linda was up for quite some time. You know how it is when you're living with other women in this house that people come and go. The front door was unlocked because some of the residents had um, lost their keys and new keys needed to be made for them. And until that time, they left it unlocked. And maybe the last person in, maybe at 2 a.m. or whatever, would, would lock the door. I don't know. But it was basically left unlocked. Bundy discovered after you know the house quieted down that the unlocked door he turned the knob and it was uh uh it, it was open he could have gone in he said no i'll come back later so here's what this guy does now keep in mind this is a university district he comes back later in the middle of the night he uh gets in the house no doubt through the front door he goes down in the basement the house has got four or five women in it he goes down in the basement and there is um, – it's just a basement that was turned into two apartments, and what separated the apartments was it's just a thin uh, partition of plywood. Wouldn't keep any sounds out. He goes in there to Linda Ann Healy's room. Some people think that he hit her with something. He didn't. He, he, in a third person, he said, well, what might have happened, he told Michelle and Ainsworth this, who ended up writing the book, uh, The Only No Living Witness, and Conversations with, with, with a Killer – he said he choked her uh, into unconsciousness and, and, and it created a nosebleed. Now, he did this, with, and he knew somebody was right in the other room. But he doesn't just do anything to her there and kill her. He takes her nightgown off, hangs it up in the closet. He moves her off the bed. He makes her bed, almost like a military job, very well done, better than she could do it. Uh, in fact, she never really made her bed except on the weekends, they said, because she had to leave so early in the morning for a job she had before school. Then he grabbed the backpack and put some clothes in it, carried her up the – if God is my witness, carried her up the steps. I've been to this house. He came out the side door, which was very close to the front door but on the side, and he had two things he could have done, and we don't know which he did. He could have gone down the very steep front steps and put – uh, her in uh, his car there. What he probably did, he probably parked his VW in the alleyway. But it was so narrow, he would effectively block it by doing it, which could also create problems. And across from there, there's other people that could have seen. So he carried her out into the night in a university district where kids may be out at any time, puts her in the car, and goes off with her. Nobody sees a thing. 
Now, detectives, you know, I mean, when they started, the, the, the police were certain that she left on her own, okay? But the people in the house said, no, if Linda had to go, uh, if she suffered a nosebleed and she had to go to the doctor, she would have taken her bike and she would have let us know. And she had her parents come over the next day and her boyfriend to make dinner. There's no sign of this, this person. She's gone. Well, when the police came to the determination of foul play, this, 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 these seasoned cops thought somebody's going to walk in the house and grab somebody like this and make a bed. What kind of person are we dealing with? <laughs> the same kind of person that they're dealing with that would, uh, and, and th- th- this is on, you know, in the early morning of February 1st, 1974, that's when he launched himself into full-time murder. Now, he did admit killing somebody in 73. I think he might have gone back even before then. But he launched himself into full-time murder where he was never coming back from it, and he knew it. He was on a road he'd never depart from. In 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 uh, January of, of 1974, his boldness grew with his abductions. He was so successful. And then on July 14th, 1974, he goes to Lake Sammamish, and he there's a crowd there of some 40,000 people. A police department is even having a picnic there. He abducts two women in the same day. He, ab- he abducts Janice Ott early in the morning. He's got his ruse of a cast. Uh, he's calling himself Ted. This is not like what you should do if you're a serial killer. But yet he did it. He got Janice to go with him by, by way of a ruse, took her to a place somewhere we, we don't know where, held her all day, and did not kill her immediately, but went back a little before 4 p.m. and hunted, hunted for a second victim. That victim, Denise Nasland, he, he presented a ruse to her as she was coming out of the bathroom at the other end of the park from where Janice Ott was and convinced her to go with him. And that was the last of her. Now, what he would later tell Hagmeyer is that um, Bill Hagmeyer, the FBI investigator that worked with him for the last couple of years of his life to gain information, and Bundy really learned to trust him. Apparently, he had kept one alive and then, um, and then brought uh, Denise into it, and they both saw each other. Okay, and the, you can imagine the terror. And then, of course, um, he had to kill one in front of the other, which would spark an unbelievable amount of terror. And uh, he was successful. So by July of 1974, this idea that these girls that would turn up missing might have left and done something, and it was all perhaps innocuous, I mean, the detectives knew that there was foul play, but they, they couldn't come out and just automatically say it because there was absolutely no evidence. By, by, by the time Lake Sammamish comes along, they knew they had a special type of killer on their hands. This wasn't the normal kind of killer. They, they, they hadn't seen anything like this. Nobody had. And um, that was the opening of when they knew that uh, all these girls, none of them are, were, were going to be found alive. And if we don't catch this guy, he's going to keep killing or he's going to move on to somewhere else and then kill there. Uh, and so that's what he did. So his M.O.s 
could could change. Um, one thing I found out, which was uh, very interesting, one of the new aspects of uh, the murders I found out. I often tell this story because when when you go to write a book, it, it really if you it, I've done about three or four biographies. When you go to write something, you end up through the writing of a book becoming an expert on the person you're writing about. You just do. It's just it's inevitable. But as you're in the research stage, you're usually pro- approaching it as a novice, and you understand that, and you're talking to people who were there. And I remember I had – this is what was so surprising uh, uh, and helped me to know I had something uh, really uh, important on my hands when I was writing The Bunny Birds. I uh, remember um, – I would gather case files at, at, at all different times, but I would write the murder sequentially. So I started in Washington State, and I worked my way up through Utah, through Colorado, through Idaho. And by the time I got to Idaho, I was writing about the death of a 12-year-old. Named, uh, her name was Lynette Culver from Pocatello, Idaho. Most of the books out there mention the murder. They certainly don't go into the murder, and there isn't a lot uh, written about the murder. Uh, in, in, until my book, which I have a lot on that murder. What I found that was interesting was uh, I'm dealing with all these investigators from the different states, but I also know that Bill Hagmeyer, the guy that I told you about who worked with Bundy at, at, at Qualico in the Behavioral Science Unit, uh, I, I knew he worked with Bundy on all of these different murders. So I called Bill up one day. I'd already had one conversation with him. I said, Bill, I said, I haven't got the case file on this girl yet, but I'm I'm, I'm in the process of, of gathering it. The only thing I have on this girl is her name and how she was murdered. And uh, I said her name is Lynette Culver, and Bundy drowned her in the bathtub. And he, he was skeptical from the moment he heard this. And I told him where I got the information from. He said, well, I, 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 I got it from Mike Fisher, the Colorado investigation, uh, the Colorado investigator. And uh, and but this was a, an Idaho case, but that's what, what what Mike told me about. Even though he was in Colorado and he dealt with those cases, he, he told me about this. And uh, Bill said, "Well, I, have, I, I like Mike. I have all the respect for him in the world." But I sat in on every confession that Bundy ever made, and nothing like that came forth. And I, okay, so I'm hearing this from the expert, and I'm the novice. I think, well, you know, I'm probably wrong about this. Mike's probably wrong. But I'll see. So I said, well, listen, Bill. Uh, and, and Bill reminded me. He said, you do know that Bundy liked to murder victims, like having sex with them from behind and, and choking them to death and doing all that. I mean, he, he had a way of wanting to kill them. And I said, I understand that. Yeah, of course. That's, that's basically his MO. But I said, tell you what I'll do. If I can, if I can ascertain any more about this, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and let you know. And so I got off the phone with Bill, and I called Mike Fisher, and he said, well, you need to call Russ Renault, chief Idaho investigator of the uh, attorney general's office in Idaho during the period of the Bundy murders. And he said, you'll, you'll have to track you know, Russ down. And uh, so I was – he said, I, Russ told me this uh, while we were out there at Florida at the end of these, these confessions. And so you have to check with him. So I called Russ up. I, I, I located Russ. And um, they actually, I talked to the attorney general office up there and the current attorney general, uh, the investigator. Uh, actually, 
put me and put uh, my informa- gave my inf- information to Russ. He called me, and, and, and we talked. And here's what he said. He said, well, here's the reason why Bill doesn't know that. He said, we were in there, and we only had one hour. And he said, I mean, one hour. That's it. They weren't going to give us any more time. We were covering two murders which occurred in the state that Bundy had admitted to, the murder of Lynette Culver and the murder of the Idaho hitchhiker that he picked up on his way to Utah when he was going to go to law school in Utah. He said, now, that's all we that, – that, that's what we talked about. But he said the interview, the way it came down, we were kind of firing off questions back and forth, and there were answers, and they were almost like covering both cases at once. And when he said uh, – when the investigators asked Bundy during that hour, what did you do with uh, – Culver, he said, well, I threw her in the Colorado, I think he said the Colorado River or the Snake River. It was a no- river north of, 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 of uh, you know, Pocatello. And because Bundy had already said that the girl drowned, that the manner of death was drowning, they assumed he meant in the river. But here's, here's Renault. He's a smart guy. He's coming out of the prison with Randy Everett. Now, the meeting's over. Haymeyer has gone back to wherever he was going to go. Uh, Bundy's attorney has gone back wherever she's going to go. And he says to, Ever, uh, to Randy, he said, um, why don't you go back into prison and see if they'll let you talk to Bundy again? Because Bundy was very open. He said, I know this is only an hour. If you have additional questions, I'll do everything I can to answer them for you. So he sent Randy back into prison. Randy goes, and, 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 and they said, yeah, okay, well, you can see Bundy. They set him in a room about 15, 20 minutes later. They bring Bundy in. They sit down. So Everett says to him, you, you said that you drowned, uh, that Lynette Culver drowned. Can you tell me about it? He said, uh, uh, yeah, I drowned her in the bathtub. And he said, and, and then he did, and of course, after, after uh, I did that, I had sex with her because, you know, he loved necrophilia. Now, Everett didn't ask, and Bundy didn't offer the information of whether or not he had rendered her at least unconscious unconscious before drowning her in the bathtub. But he did say that the murder committed that way. Now, see, that didn't come out in the confession. So this confession took place in 1989, and I'm calling Bill Hagmeyer in 2007 and bringing him information that I had, that he didn't have, and yet he's the expert. So then I had to, after I learned, and, and, and Russ said that's why Bill doesn't know it, because it didn't happen in the session. Now, technically, that second meeting should have never happened, because he should have technically been there. The attorney should have been there. But it was Bundy who said, yes, let's go ahead and do it, and he met with Randy anyway. So that was the kind of thing. So I had to email, I had to email Bill and say, Bill, what I told you was true. Like, and here's why you know you didn't know it. And in fact, I clu- include a, include a portion of that email I sent to Bill in uh, the second book, The Trail of Ted Bundy. But this is the kind of stuff that was coming that I was digging up as an investigator that uh, even Bill didn't have, and it was more than that. Uh, he, you know, when he went to Pocatello, he was there two days and one night, but he never could snatch a female, even though he was hunting at the university there. But I found out through my 
investigation and through the case files that the two days he was there, even though it was May 6th, it was very cold, and, and the, the city kept being blanketed by snow showers. And, of course, that makes sense why he couldn't get a victim because any woman that he was probably trying to flag down and talk to was not interested in stopping in weather like that. And so it made his hunting more difficult. And then, of course, the next day, he kind of meandered towards this uh, middle school, and that's where he got this uh, preteen, you know, Lynette Culver. So a lot came forth from that. And uh, so, you know, it's just, it's just interesting how this stuff comes out. But, you know, you, you can be approaching it, and you, you hear these things. And you ne- that's the thing about do, doing a case. You never know when you're going to unearth new information that's going to be very important and very valid. And I must tell you, I was surprised that, that the story I heard about uh, Culver being correct after Bill said, he said it on every, uh, every confession, and he never heard anything like that. So I was very skeptical after that, but it turned out to be valid information, and I ended up letting him know it. So it's, it's just interesting how those, to, to be the go-between there, for me to be letting Bill Hagmar know, it's just kind of strange. <laughs> uh, Kevin, we're we're running down to our last few minutes. I, I'd like to, uh, before we run out of time, if you sure. could tell us a little bit about uh, what made Bundy tick. Was he ever diagnosed with a certain condition? Did he just plain yeah. hate women? Yeah, okay. Well, he. the thing of it is, is that Bundy tried to blame it on pornography at the end and that's not true pornography has a tremendous amount of negatives to it changes relationships it does a lot of things it changes people but one thing it doesn't do it doesn't teach men to murder women cut off their heads and have sex with their dead bodies that that it doesn't do what happened to bundy what made him this way uh has to do with and we don't know why a fracturing of his personality and that goes back to his childhood, to where they would see strange things occur in him, even as a little boy. And then, of course, once he developed as a young man, he was unsure of himself. Being a psychopath, he couldn't feel things the same way that the rest of us could. But He could feel hurt, embarrassment, things like that. But he developed differently. And the strange thing about this is we don't know why. And, uh, you know, he could have at any point not gone. This is no excuse to Bundy. No one has to go down that road. But the, the, the truth of the matter is he learned to go down that road. He wanted to go down that road. But in the final analysis, I don't think anybody's ever going to know why he went down that road and why he became the merciless killer he became. It's a, it's a fascinating study to look at but it's there's going to be always a sense of mystery about him because we don't know why he became that way well kevin you know you have to disclose one of the secrets in your last book the secrets of ted bundy our listeners Uh have to know one of them well i do have this i have a lot of testimony in there i have a testimony of louise cannon she's never been interviewed before by anybody except the police and she's in my book and she she was a bank teller in Utah, 
And Bundy had two types of women he wanted to do, those he wanted to kill and those he wanted to get to know. He wanted to get to know her. He liked her. What's interesting, she saw him, and she put the date together with this later. She saw him only two hours before he left the bar that she ran into him in uh, to where he would murder uh, a young girl named Melissa Smith, which people who are aware of the Bundy case know who she's in, who who she is. And he murdered her just like I say two hours after that and only four blocks away. Uh, he uh, ran into her in, in a pizza restaurant and ended up abducting her sometime after she left there. But it's an interesting story, and that's one thing about these testimonies that have never come forth before. Uh, it's really great to get them out uh, for people to see because the more we know about this case and the more we know about any murder case, the better off society will be. The more you know about what is bad out there and uh, what to look for in people uh, – I think the safer people are as a society overall. Kevin, uh, we're going to have to wrap it up here. Uh, I don't know where the time went to, but it flew by. Uh, it did, didn't it? It certainly did. Uh, the uh, the Bundy Secrets, uh, now that is through <laughs> Wild Blue Press? Yes, yes. The, the, and the, the, and the, where the can that book be purchased? Yes. Okay, you can purchase uh, uh, it uh, at Amazon. You can order it through a bookstore. I guess they could do it through that. I, I'm not sure, but uh, Amazon's the place to go. And you can go to Wild Blue Press. They carry all of my books as far as uh, uh, links to Amazon, even those not published by them. And I write uh, true crime blogs through Wild Blue Press. If they, people go to my author page at wildbluepress.com, uh, they can uh, see everything that I have there. Oh, that's that's great. It's uh, uh, if you got a project you're moving on to now, now that you're pretty much done with Ted. Yeah, I'm actually writing another book for McFarland, and I should be finishing this up in April. And uh, it has to do. Uh, I don't like to talk about too much in advance, but uh, homicides at large and the various things that contribute to homicides, and where people uh, often let their guard down. And don't realize it, and uh, um, it can it can actually uh, hinder them and make them victims uh, when they don't need to be made victims. Some people really have their guard down when it comes to violent crime, especially if it's never happened to them. And so I talk about that in the book. But as more comes out and I get closer to publication, I'll, I'll be I can be forthright about it all at that time. <laughs> that guard well, of things uh... that we writers have. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that next book, something right up our rally here on Crime Wire. So if you uh, let us know sure. when it's out, when you can talk more about it, we'd love to have you back on. Sure. Well, I'd love to be back on. Yes. Okay, Kevin, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your expertise on uh, Mr. Bundy. Uh, thanks also okay. to our listeners. And until next time, stay safe. Thank you. We'll see you later, guys. Bye-bye.